Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I have some really exciting news to share. I wrote a memoir called The Plant Hunter that will be available on October 12th. In The Plant Hunter, I share my life's journey in science, developing new ways to fight illness and disease through the healing powers of plants. It's a book about adventure, scientific discovery, medicine, and so much more. If you'd like to learn more about the book or pre-order it, um, you can head to my website at CassandraQuave.com, and that's C-A-S-S-A-N-D-R-A-Q-U-A-V-E.com. Now, onward to our very exciting topic of the week. We're going to talk about some of my favorite, one of my favorite plant families, the nightshade or Solanaceae family, and explore it from some really interesting angles. Um, some of you may have heard about the legends of the Norse berserkers, these historic wild warriors from Scandinavia that were known to enter into a trance-like state that allowed them to fight with increased strength and this incredible rage that granted them immunity to many forms of harm in battle. There have been a number of different theories as to what advanced the cause of this state of berserkerage, um, with the intoxicating mushroom Amanita muscaria being a top contender um, among some of these running theories. However, a new theory has emerged that another species is responsible, an intoxicating member of the nightshade family. Dr. Karsten Fatur is joining us today to explain the rationale behind this theory of Hyosimus niger, which you may also commonly know as henbane, as the possible um, intoxicant re responsible for berserkerage um, symptoms. Dr. Fatur recently completed his PhD with a dissertation focusing on the uses of anticholinergic solanaceous plants in Europe. His research interests are broadly centered within ethnobotany as they apply to medicinal and psychoactive plants, especially as the two use categories for these plants overlap and where they include sacred rituals. He's also interested in useful plants that are more broadly, um, more broadly including their adaptation to human-induced environmental variables, as well as their ecology and chemical properties. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Carson. It's great to see you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, why don't we just start by painting a picture of who these people were? Like, who were the Viking berserkers? That's definitely a good place to start. Unfortunately, even after we talk about it, the picture is still going to be very murky. <laughs> okay. uh, so there's actually a lot of debate even today about who these people were. Uh, generally, they're kind of a group of elite warriors who were thought to have lived about a thousand years ago. And they were only around for a few centuries in Scandinavia. But beyond that, there's actually very little we know, largely because a lot of the information about this tradition was not recorded at the time. Mm. And it was only recorded later after this tradition had already been stamped out by the Christian church once they had gained a foothold in Scandinavia. So a lot of the records are now kind of hearsay based on legends, based on stories. And so it's hard to say what was true and what wasn't. Uh, that being said, generally, as I said, they lived about a thousand years ago, and they were a very specific class of warrior, thought to be very elite. Uh, they entered a very specific sort of rage state in battle that was characterized by a lot of different symptoms. For example, anger, um, sort of a loss of empathy. Um, they didn't feel pain. Um, and then they had a range of different physical symptoms. For example, they were thought to shiver a lot. They were said to bite on their shields. They were thought to have chills. 
And then some things that were a bit more difficult to explain, for example, they were said to be invulnerable to swords and fire. Mm. So obviously with time, it's difficult to say which of these things were true and which weren't. But in general, we paint the picture of kind of these very intense warriors who were known to be kind of the bane of their enemies at the time. Yeah. And so if you were, if, if you're an enemy being faced by these berserkers coming at you, I mean, were, were they coordinated in these efforts kind of like as an orchestrated exhibition of power or anger, or were they kind of just really, or what, what did the legends say? Like, were they individually just running at you with a crazed state or like, what, what would the scene have looked like if you were being attacked by berserkers? This they're not too specific on, but it's very likely things would have just been pretty crazy, kind of a free-for-all. So, for example, the berserkers were also known to attack their friends at times because mm -hmm. they couldn't differentiate between who was on their side and who wasn't. Um, so, really, I think it was just kind of a general bloodbath. That being said, they may have had some sort of plan behind it, but it's not something that's been passed down to us, really. Um, another kind of characteristic of them is berserker comes from the word bearskin originally. Mm -hmm. So these people were thought potentially either to have worn the pelts of animals into battle to kind of channel their ferocity, or the term has also been interpreted to mean that they were bare-skinned, as in not wearing armor. So the idea is that these people were kind of, yeah, pretty kind of crazy free-for-all in battle, and that they've thrown their armor off, and they're either mostly naked or they're covered in animal pelts, which either way is going to be a pretty terrifying sight with these people <laughs> running, screaming at you. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. So Carson, you've spent your PhD really evaluating um, some of the different psychoactives that were used in Europe. Um, I know that uh, Amanita muscari, which is a mushroom, is one of the possible candidates for this, but you also started looking into, into some of these solanaceous plants. What can you tell us about the different types of psychoactives that would have been found in Europe during that period? Uh, again, this is where things get kind of hazy with the records. But there were a range of psychoactive substances found in Europe. Uh, so, for example, um, psilocybin mushrooms have an extensive history in Europe, but exactly for how long they've been used and where is very up for debate, depending on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. um, Amanita muscaria. Then also the main ones, the ones that I focused on and kind of have the most historic use, are in the Solanaceae family, as you've mentioned. So Atropa belladonna, Pyoscyamus species, Mandragora species, Datura species later on, and Scopolia species. Uh, so these plants were the ones that were most broadly used. However, it's also worth noting that they're very poisonous. So their use has kind of decreased with time as safer alternatives have come to be found. So with it, we've also lost a lot of information about how these plants would have been used at the time. Mm. Wow. So when we think about some of these, these psycho psychoactive solanaceae species, can you tell us a bit about their chemistry? Um, what elicits these psychoactive properties? Sure. So these plants are known for having a few different chemicals in them. Uh, the main psychoactive one is scopolamine, which mm -hmm. has been used actually industrially. They used to use it as a mind control kind of drug uh, wow. around the time of the Second World War, I believe. There was a lot of research into using it as a truth serum, things like that, because it has these kinds of properties. Uh, so these substances are known to be delirians because in addition to being psychoactive, they kind of do so in a way where they cloud the mind and they tend to cause very realistic and often dark hallucinations. So a lot of people whom I've spoken with who have used them tend to have seen hallucinations that they couldn't discern from reality, which despite the term hallucinogen, that's actually quite rare for hallucinogenic substances. Most times it's more just perceptual shifts um, and they tend to be dark. So people seeing kind of 
monstrous things or kind of very gruesome scenes, things like that. Uh, and so, again, these things are caused by scopolamine largely, which is known as an anticholinergic drug. Uh, so what it does is in our body, we have all these different receptors and we have a subset that are called muscarine receptors. Uh, so what scopolamine and the similar chemicals within the plants do is they act as antagonists at these um, areas for acetylcholine. So what that means is they kind of latch on to the neurotransmitters here and they, or the cells, sorry, <laughs> and they prevent acetylcholine from being able to bond to the cells. And as a result, they cause these hallucinations because they're bonding within your nervous system. So your brain, uh, your nerves, things like that. Uh, but since there are actually different subtypes of these muscarine receptors, they also cause a range of other effects. So one of the main ones is a decrease in bodily secretions. Mm. So we tend to get dry mouth. Our gut motility tends to slow down, things like that, which is why these substances are still used sometimes as pre-anesthetics to kind of slow down our body's metabolisms for producing fluids and make it easier to conduct operations afterwards. Um, but they also cause these hallucinogenic effects, which are more pertinent to this. Yeah, I, I teach, um, one of the lessons I teach to my medical botany class is on toxidromes and how you have like cholinergic versus anticholinergic drugs. And you have a toxidrome is, is basically this um, series of symptoms you might see with a certain poisoning event. So on one end, you have like the sludge syndromes, you have salivation, lacrimation, death. I mean, you're just basically leaking from every pore in your body, right? And these anticholinergics, on the other hand, act um, to really dry everything up. So there's a saying um, also that, you know, you're mad as a hatter, dry as, dry as a bone or something. There, there's like, you know, mm -hmm. these, these differences in, in symptomologies. So when you think about those those classic symptoms and especially these dark hallucinations, um, how did, as you're investigating this and, and what is known about the history of the berserkers, kind of how did you come about this theory that it could have been one of these, you know, plants that are rich in these types of alkaloids that elicit these effects? Uh, I wish I could say that I was very smart and it just kind of came to me, but <laughs> it was actually completely accidental, really. Uh, so obviously the main bulk of my thesis research was based on these Solanaceae plants and their uses as hallucinogens in Europe. Um, but as part of that, I was also doing some broader research on the use of hallucinogens in general among modern populations. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a result of that, I was doing some reading on Amanita muscaria. And because of that, kind of this information about the berserkers kept coming up since it's such an accepted theory that Amanita muscaria was used by them to induce their rage state in battle. Uh, and with time, just becoming more familiar with it, I started going, that doesn't sound right. That sounds a lot more like these Solanaceae plants. And so I started to dive into it. And I said, okay, no, I'm pretty sure that sounds like this. So I then mm -hmm. figured I had to kind of consult more historical and archaeological documents. And after I'd kind of delved into those a little bit, I realized that some of these plants were available to these berserkers at the time. So, for example, Hyaskymus niger, the plant that I ultimately ended up theorizing was the cause of their intoxication, was known to grow as a pesky weed already at mm. the time of the berserkers. And these plants really, they are crazy weeds. For example, um, a related species, Hyaskymus albus, which we actually have a press of right here. Oh, nice. Uh, tends to grow kind of further south in Europe. But I was in Naples, I believe, once, and just up on a castle there was a bunch of these Hyaskymus albus plants growing out the sides of the walls. 
I don't know how they got there. There was literally nowhere for a bird to land to put a seed there. And it was just above the ocean and they're just jutting out. So really they are crazy weeds. Wherever they land, they will grow. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at the time these were prevalent and available to them to use. Uh, Whereas Amanita muscaria would have been more limited because it has to grow kind of uh, in association with different types of trees and forests because it's mushroom roots. They're not technically roots. Uh, grow in association with the roots of the trees around them in order to Mm -hmm. live. So as a result of all of these bits of information coming together, I realized that this plant was probably what was causing this state. Mm. So what what are the symptoms like when when one imbibes um, henbane? I mean, this can also be quite deadly, right? If you if you're to take a high dose of this, what 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 does it do to the body? Yeah, this is definitely do not try at home, (laughs) which actually it's worth mentioning since the paper was published, I've gotten quite a few messages from people who are looking to try this. Um, So yeah, it's important to mention, please don't try this, (laughs) not safe. Um, But there is quite a range of um, effects when you take these substances. So as we mentioned, there was the decrease in salivation and in your gut motility, Um, but also there's a large dilation of your pupils. So your pupils get much larger, which also causes kind of a blurring of your vision. Uh, It can also cause headache, um, also decreased secretions uh, in your respiratory system. Obviously, your sweating decreases as well. Really, like you said, everything is just drying up and shriveling up. Uh, There can also be effects on your heart rate. Uh, So, for example, bradycardia or tachycardia, depending on the dosage. Obviously, hyperthermia as a result of the decreased uh, perspiration. And, and then, you mentioned shivering too in the legends that they were they would shiver. So that that's interesting. Yeah, that one's mm-hmm. a difficult one to fit in. So that one, I theorized in the paper that it could be maybe they were just cold if they thrown their clothes off. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> and they true. Live in Scandinavia, who knows? Uh, <laughs> that being said, the, these substances can also cause some um, tremors occasionally. Ah, so that could have been yeah. related to that, but that's getting a little bit iffy on the proof front. So that one's hard to prove. Um, But there are also a range of other kind of quasi-psychoactive effects. So, for example, they tend to cause uh, sleepiness, lack of coordination, um, incoherent speaking, disturbances of the memory, all in addition to these very extreme hallucinations. Um, But they can also, as you mentioned, cause death as well as serious coma. So they are very dangerous substances that need to be treated accordingly. That being said, they have also been used as medicines in Europe for thousands of years. So again, we get back to the difference between a medicine and a dangerous drug is in dosage and the way it's used. Mm, that's a really good point. Um, I've a long time ago, I, I've I've read about some of the other ways that some of these solanaceous plants are applied. In addition to, uh, I think in some cases they've been smoked. You've had cases where some of them have been instilled into the eye. I'm thinking of like a tropa belladonna instilled to the eye, but also application across mucous membranes and and kind of the ties to witchcraft. I don't know if you can tell us a bit about that, um, just because you're you know, so knowledgeable about these plants and their history in Europe. Sure. So that is, again, there's a range of what's actually available in the literature on this. And some people have interpreted things in more liberal ways than others. (laughs) Okay. Um, But in general, yeah. So a lot of people believe that these plants obviously were used um, medicinally for a long period of time. uh, And part of this was application to mucous membranes Mm -hmm. uh, medicinally as ointments. Um, so kind of, I think the main prevailing theory, or at least maybe the one that I think is the most accurate is that these substances also came to be used kind of as recreational drugs. 
by poorer people who didn't have access to alcohol or anything to smoke at the time. And obviously poorer people were already kind of in danger of being accused of witchcraft as was. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think a lot of times then these drugs ended up getting pulled into it because there were also Christian notions about ointments being used by witches. Uh, that being said, their ointments were said to contain all sorts of crazy ingredients like parts of dead babies and blood mm -hmm. of bats and things like that. Uh, whereas these ointments very likely did not include a lot of these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's very likely that these plants were being used by people who were accused of witchcraft. Whether or not people were actually using them actively, they themselves identifying it as part of witchcraft is a different story. Some people have theorized that that is the case, but there isn't really evidence that backs that up. Mm -hmm. At least for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about some of these plants. I mean, I mean, henbane's fascinating in itself, but there's also, you know, we talked about um, deadly nightshade or Atropa belladonna, um, the mandrake or mandragora, um, and I there's another one on the tip of my tongue that's just missing. But what can you tell us about these other the and these are in different genera, but still in the Solanaceae family and and have these really you know psychoactive um, tropane alkaloids. What can you tell us about these? Because I think it really spans the full, you know, from north to south of Europe. You know, I've 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 collected mandrake before on like a very, you know, all the way down to almost the coast of North Africa um, in in Sicily. So what, what can you tell us about the distribution and history of some of these other psychoactive plants from this family? So the distribution is varied and it's very different from what it was historically. So, for example, Mandragora was a genus that was traditionally in the southern part of Europe, over into the Middle East a bit, and in the northern bits of Africa. But it was a very valued plant, which is why it's been incorporated into a lot of legends and even popular culture. For example, everyone who's read or seen Harry Potter knows <laughs> that there's that very big scene with these plants in it. Because they were so important. This was among the most important of medicinal plants back at the time, a couple thousand years ago. Um, but that being said, Mandragora is now being spread more widely through Europe. And it's hard to say where you can find it. Even in the ranges where it grows naturally, it's not a super common plant. Yeah. So it's hard to say when you find it further north, is it being grown there by someone? Has it just escaped captivity? Or how did it get there? Um, the other plants are much more widespread. So as we said, Hyoscyamus niger is now found throughout Europe and beyond, actually. It's being introduced globally as a weed. Uh, whereas Hyoscyamus albus, the one that we talked about seeing in Naples on the castle and that I showed mm -hmm. you a picture of, is more limited to the southern parts of Europe. Uh, Datura species have been introduced from the Americas to Europe and are mm -hmm. now widespread. Datura stramonium is spread throughout all of Europe. And now Datura inoxia, another species that was traditionally grown further south, is now spreading further up into Europe as well. Uh, and then we also have Scopolia, which mm -hmm. is probably the most limited in its range. It kind of grows um, from the kind of western part of the Balkans up towards Poland and the Baltic states mm -hmm. in that one little band. So of all the genera here, it's the most limited. Yeah, well, that makes sense and how you could rule out Datura as as a possible, you know, intoxicant <laughs> for the for the Vikings because it was a, it was from the Americas and wouldn't have been introduced until post 1400s. Yeah, mm -hmm. there is some debate about that. Some people think mm -hmm. that it has long been present in Europe. But I think mm -hmm. a lot of the theories that support this are more kind of wishful thinking than anything. 
it seems like the actual solid facts actually point to it having been brought over from the Americas. Yeah. So yeah, that one was quite easy to rule out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, thinking about, you know, building evidence, I know it's difficult with, you know, when you think about the limited amount of literature that exists or records that exist of exactly what was used in these, in these legendary traditions, but, you know, what are some other pathways forward to kind of advance this area of research? Have you, have you thought about that, about what other questions you could ask? Yeah. So I think for this research to continue, I think what really needs to happen is new discoveries. I think I went through what I could find as available information already. Mm -hmm. I think we need really new archaeological or new historical finds in order for us to kind of have a better idea of what could have been the cause of this. Which is important to note in that this theory about Hyaskymus Niger is just that. It's only a theory. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the information that's available right now. So maybe future archaeological research will find some other plant remains there. Maybe it's a plant we've never even heard of before. Who knows? Oh, wow. And, yeah, yeah, that would be cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, and so maybe there will be very concrete archaeological evidence that will link this new undiscovered plant uh, to this phenomenon. But until something like that happens, we're stuck with what we've got. And yeah. so far, I think this theory is kind of the best way we have of explaining this phenomenon based on what we know at present. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's a fascinating example of how you can construct an, a theory from from the information you have available because you incorporated not only like the botanical history, but also your understanding of ethnobotanical practices today and in more recent history. Um, and of course, the physiology of how these these compounds work that are found in the plant. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's, I think the best way to approach something like this is very interdisciplinary fundamentally. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are so many different lenses you can come at this with. So for this, I mean, there was archaeological information, historical information, cultural information, botanical information, chemical information, <laughs> and there was even a bit of linguistic information. So for example, um, the common name for this plant in Croatia is the same as their word for um, someone to be in an angered state. Oh, interesting. Uh, so this plant is known to create kind of an anger in people, which is something that was seen if it was being used by the berserker warriors. Mm -hmm. So it's, there are these little hints all over and kind of individually, maybe they don't add up to anything, but when put together and taken in context, suddenly it does start to paint a picture. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm fascinated also going back to this idea around archaeology is not only in the, the, the kind of imagery that you see in different, in different artifacts, but also you know, we have more and more advanced chemical tools where we can look at, you know, if, if there is residue remaining that could be analyzed through mass spectrometry, that might open up some interesting pathways down the road. Yeah, yeah. that'd be really cool. But again, then that also ties in with our difficulty of we would have to find something you, that we would know is berserker <laughs> remains. And how do you know that? We don't even know who they were, really. Yeah, <laughs> that's a long, that's a really, yeah, realizing a lot of, a lot of very specific bits of luck and getting to that, to that but, point. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, if that happened, that would be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I guess one thing, one other thing I wanted to talk about is when we think about, you know, you mentioned earlier, um, psilocybin and amanita. So these are both mushrooms, um, what are their symptoms like? How how does that differ from that of hyostomus, of henbane? Uh, so the symptoms for psilocybin uh, mushrooms are actually very, very different from both. Mm -hmm. So obviously they're more marked by kind of 
traditional, it's a psychedelic substance because it works on serotonin pathways in your body. Mm-hmm. So it causes kind of shifts in your perception as kind of the main symptom. Uh, whereas if we get into Amanita muscaria, it actually does have very similar symptoms to the okay. Solanaceae plants. Mm-hmm. So much so that scientists originally thought that there were anticholinergic substances in Amanita muscaria before they discovered that there weren't. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That being said, this gets back to what you were talking about earlier. Some of the plants that kind of dry you up, others that kind of just make you melt all over the place. Mm-hmm. And Amanita muscaria is one of those gross melt all over the place ones. Okay. So it's much more annoying for causing uh, increased perspiration, increased drooling, and also nausea and vomiting, all of which are things are not as present uh, in cases of intoxication involving solanaceae plants. Uh, it's also, when compared to the anticholinergic substances, uh, is not prone to causing anger or quite the same dissociative state. So it does cause shifts in perception, but not the same level of very realistic and dark hallucinations. Um, and it's not the same kind of dissociative level. Uh, so for example, people who take Amanuta muscaria, a lot of times they just kind of end up feeling kind of sick and having mm-hmm. light perceptual changes. Whereas people who will take the Solanaceous plants, it's they black out and they wake up days later in a ditch naked somewhere and they have no idea what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Very powerful yeah, plant medicine it, there. Wow. It's it, Yeah, which is, again, why they're very dangerous, not just their physical dangers, but also, yeah. I mean, who knows what you're doing in that time. So yeah, they're wow. definitely, again, not to try at home. <laughs> yeah, I guess, it. you know, I wonder, has from your research, have there been, for example, animal studies done with these or other kind of behavioral studies? I'm guessing there haven't been clinical trials using <laughs> these because that would be really... <laughs> I mean, in these levels, no. So there has been some clinical research involving these um, Mm -hmm. back in the times when they were kind of thinking of applications of these, for example, as truth theorems, like I was saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And though there isn't often these kind of clinical studies for them, we do have a lot of kind of toxicology reports that report kind of the different symptoms that arise, as well as some of the context behind it. Um, So as a result of that, that's where a lot of the information about these different symptoms come from. because lots of people try these plants either as a cheap drug or accidentally they think they're picking who knows some kind of spinach and actually they're Mm. picking something psychoactive or it's an adulterant sometimes it gets into even a common food substance sometimes um so yeah it can be tricky to know exactly how these different substances would react under controlled conditions. But we do, since there are so many of these different reports on toxicology, we have a very fair idea of uh, what the symptoms are. Wow. So now that you've you've just recently um, finished your PhD, congratulations. Thank you. Um, what's what's up next? Like, are are you going? Are you planning to continue in these investigations on on the Solanaceae? Um, what are what are you looking t- um, towards in the future for your research? Uh, I think for now I've done all that I can with, at least with this section of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, my thesis was composed of 10 different articles or something on it. And I think I kind of exhausted the topic based on current information mm-hmm. and my current resources. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, future directions would be very dependent. Um, but definitely the topics of psychoactive plants, as well as medicinal and ritual plants, all still very much interest me. So I would very much like to continue with something in that vein, if possible. Very cool. 
Well, and there's one other question I, I, I like to ask of the guest, and this has to do with cooking, obviously not with <laughs> not with the, 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 the psychoactive solanaceous species, but do you have any favorite recipes from this family that you enjoy? Oh, that's a tough one. Or maybe another family. I mean, if we were going to go with the Solanaceae, so the Solanaceae has a lot of very important crop plants. So bell peppers, eggplant, uh, tomatoes, for example. Mm-hmm. I would have to say stuffed peppers. Mm. With You get um, polenta and lentils and some different kind of vegetables inside them. And then you spice it up using, um, I can remember the word, uh, paprika. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're very good. That so sounds that amazing. One, bell pepper, Solanaceae. <laughs> It's the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Carson, for sharing this with us. I, I mean, it's just a fascinating topic. It's a, it's really interesting to, like you said, bring together these different interdisciplinary perspectives to trying to understand some of these historic practices um, through a lens of biogeography, language, um, you know, uh, taxonomy chemistry, physiology. I mean, that's that's the way I think we should approach all areas of science is, is through these kind of interdisciplinary lenses. Yeah, I think that's definitely something I've noticed more and more is more people are doing interdisciplinary work and it's more in demand. And I think, yeah, that's definitely the way of the future for science. That's great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you for having me. Great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for their assistance and awesome producing power in getting this show out to all of you, our dear listeners. Um, if you'd like to find this or other episodes, you can follow us on um, Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website at foodiepharmacology.com or catch the video version of the episode at my YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>